0: Back in 1964, I remember Bob Dylan singing, The Times, They Are a-Changing. Dylan's parents were part of a close-knit Jewish community, and he's been called a poet and a prophet. But I don't think even Bob Dylan could imagine how the world has changed in the decades since he wrote his anthem of change. Now there's a sense in the air that we're about to enter a brave new world of the great reset it's the new age of technocracy where the world's economic political and religious ideas are being fundamentally changed by an elite group who manipulate the media the world's governments and our global resources but what does the bible have to say about the new world that many are anticipating well we're right on schedule of prophetic history The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. It's almost unimaginable how daily life has changed for billions of people since the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus. Our lives have literally been turned upside down by lockdowns, restricted government regulations about work, travel, schools, and even church meetings. And as we hopefully emerge from all the demands and control dictated by what's generically labeled in the media as science, we read of plans being proposed for new ways of governing our daily life. Vague phrases are being thrown around, like the Great Reset and a New World Order, suggested by the media. We don't know exactly what this is all about, but we are assured by the powers and authority that everything is moving towards a grand utopian future that will benefit all of mankind through the application of science, and technology. They say such a future is just around the corner if we will continue to allow the powers that be to carry on with their aggressive plans. They claim climate change will be conquered, new breakthroughs in medicine will promise us longer and healthier lives, and poverty will be eliminated, while at the same time inequality and discrimination will be eradicated. But hold on just a minute. This Bible has a completely different viewpoint of what tomorrow will be like. And concerning the poor, Jesus told us very clearly in Mark 14, 7, The poor you're always going to have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But, he said, you will not always have me. So Jesus made it clear that giving to the poor is vital. But taking care of the poor must not take the place of sharing the gospel. Spending all our time, effort, and resources feeding and caring for the poor without teaching them about Jesus may result in warm and well-fed people on the road to hell. On his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul also collected funds for the poor. And the Bible has many verses about giving to the poor. But nowhere does this Bible promise to eliminate poverty, at least not until Jesus returns to bring in the kingdom of God. But let's look at the anticipation of the leading elites in this postmodern world. They claim that they can control universal and historic problems if only given the chance. Where did these secular ideas originate? And what's the real game plan if they succeed in creating their fantasy of utopia in the 21st century? Well, I want to credit some of my research this week to a book by Patrick Wood called Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order. The concept of technocracy can be traced back to the Great Depression of the 1930s. By 1932, in the depths of economic troubles, Columbia University President Nicholas Butler argued that capitalism and free enterprise had failed. He claimed the world needed a new approach to manage civilization, a new economic system. and This is where the term technocracy originated. There was no room in this hierarchy for ordinary businessmen, educators, statesmen, or clergy. Everything must be regulated by scientists and engineers. And there was a philosophical argument. In the early 19th century, philosopher Henri de Saint-Simon wrote, and this is a very revealing quote, Scientists are superior to all other men. So the founding fathers of the New World Order worship science and scientism over scientific methods. They're foolishly indulging in the age-old belief that mankind can somehow live beyond our human limitations and achieve eternal life here on earth without doing it God's way, without being born again. They don't know the Word of God. So now, my friends, we're truly living in a world of science fiction. The technocrats are talking about the coming age of post-homo sapiens, They're talking of transhumans, converging biotechnology and gene editing. But all this is just quickly leading up to the regime of Antichrist. Our prayers can help to restrain the rush towards globalism, but the trend is inevitable according to Bible prophecy. We're witnessing the end-time worship of science. It's transhumanism versus populism. With the science fiction of a promised techno-utopia. Transhumanism and social engineering are the new religion of the coming technocracy, and the idea of scientism and technocracy to run the world has been growing in popular culture for decades. By the 1930s, there were already study courses to promote technocracy. As ideas emerged, that the new system would eradicate ownership of private property. Money supply would no longer be needed because every conceivable human need would be met by a board of technocrats. With all these ideas evolving in 1932, English author Aldous Huxley reacted with his best-selling book, Brave New World, which has retained its impact for nearly a century. And just how far have we come towards a brave new world? Well, by the 1980s, the United Nations was busy repackaging the concept of an engineered utopia with demands for world conservation and sustainable development. In fact, for the creation of a new international economic order. Well, these were important sounding big ideas and seemingly harmless to the everyday life of an ordinary citizen. After all, who would object to conserving the planet and eliminating poverty? But the UN had ambitious goals to set through a series of Earth summits and treaties on climate change. In fact, the UN's vision of our world by the year 2030 includes some of the following goals. An end to world poverty and hunger. Quality education and complete gender equality. Safe water, sanitation, and energy for everyone, and global protection of ecosystems, forests, and the oceans. The list goes on without emphasizing who and how everything on the planet should be managed to make all of this happen. The so called Agenda 21 Plan, as it's known, was adopted in 2015 by 193 member states of the UN including the United States, the U.K., and the E.U. Chances are your local or regional government has enthusiastically endorsed these goals. But who set these objectives to be accomplished by now less than a decade away? The creation of Agenda 21 can be traced back to U.N. Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. In 2012, he appointed an elite global group called the high-level panel of eminent persons. Well, that has an absolutely big brother ring to it, doesn't it? Imagine just 27 hand-picked persons conferred together for 10 months to draw up the future of our planet. Now that gives you a taste of the whole theory that scientists and engineers, the technocrats, plan to manage our brave new world. And with the COVID lockdown experiences we've been enduring, we already have a preview of how scientists are micromanaging the endless regulations of every aspect of our world. Governments everywhere are bombarding the public with graphs, statistics and speculations from the world of science to justify the lockdown scenario. In Israel, the majority of the population has been vaccinated. To challenge or even to question the technocracy making all these regulations and demands risks being shut down on social media and various platforms. So scientism has definitely become a new religion of the 21st century. Eminent persons decree where the planet is headed, and the elites of technology and science assure us that they are best qualified to run this world, but our Bible of course, has a very different perspective. God's plan from before creation is fulfilling every prophecy in this holy word given to us as our guide. So let's see where this prophetic word will take us. Many misguided pastors and churches envision bringing the kingdom of God on earth without the physical return of Jesus, but they simply ignore the importance of Bible prophecy. The culmination of history, as prophesied in the Bible, doesn't even seem to cross their minds because they're too wedded to this world. But prophecies of the restoration of the Messianic Kingdom to Israel are yet to be fulfilled, even though Messiah has already come. The Messianic Kingdom was postponed and put on pause because of Israel's rejection of Messiah, And most definitely, the prophecies concerning the Messianic kingdom will finally be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming. In the interim, God introduced the church age, which the New Testament explains was a mystery hidden in God. But all the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible of the kingdom will be fulfilled at the Lord's second coming. The kingdom of God on earth, known as the millennial, that's the thousand-year rule of Messiah, has been in a state of postponement while Jesus has gathered his mystical body of the church from all the nations. Then, when the fullness of the Gentiles is gathered and complete, Jesus will redeem Israel and return to regathered Israel. According to Acts chapter 3, verse 21, the long period of our Lord's absence will continue only until the times of restoration of all things. As I speak, Israel is in the process of restoration. And the timing of the Lord's return is under the absolute authority of the Father in heaven. Now here's where I'm going with all of this today. The fact that Jesus knew his kingdom on earth was going to be rejected and postponed is explained in his parable of the talents recorded in Luke chapter 19. I always thought this parable about the talents or the coins was about accountability and reward. And it is. But it's also much more than that. It's also a parable about the first and second comings of Jesus. I've always missed that point until my study this week. I've discovered that it's a parable about a monarch being Jesus himself. It's a parable about the Lord's present spiritual kingdom in His absence, as well as His future physical kingdom on earth when He returns. And this is why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and why we pray in the Lord's prayer for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this parable was told in Jericho prior to Jesus going up to Jerusalem, just before His triumphant entry, and the week of his death and resurrection that we call Holy Week. Luke 19 starts out with Jesus passing through Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. And in Jericho lived Zacchaeus, a very wealthy chief tax collector. Zacchaeus wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus, but being short, he couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed a sycamore tree to watch as Jesus passed by. But to his surprise and utter amazement, Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I have to stay at your house today. Well, joyfully, Zacchaeus hurried down and welcomed Jesus. Everybody began to grumble that Jesus would stay at the house of a sinner, a despised tax collector. But Jesus' visit absolutely transformed Zacchaeus. He was so touched by the magnanimous heart of Jesus that he declared, Look, Lord, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I will repay fourfold. Well, the margin of my Bible gives a cross-reference to the Torah back in Numbers chapter 5, where the Lord instructed Moses that if anyone acts unfaithfully against the Lord by committing any sin, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed and He must make full restitution to the one he has wronged, adding a fifth to its value. But Zacchaeus declared he would go so far beyond the demand of the Torah in making restitution. He promised a fourfold restitution if he had wronged anybody. I could just see Jesus smiling and looking around at the crowd as he replied, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then, while the people were listening, Jesus proceeded to tell them his parable about the talents, or the parable of the coins, as some translations say. The King James Bible calls it the parable of the pounds, so the British can especially relate to that. First of all, this parable teaches us that Jesus' physical absence from planet Earth at present is a period of probation. And during this probation period, those of us who come to a saving knowledge of the Lord must demonstrate our loyalty and service to Him. But secondly, the parable teaches that the Lord's return will be the occasion of great accounting and recompense, reward and destruction. And now here's something I especially want to underline, and don't miss this. A lot of the discussion that went on that day in the tax collector's house had to do with money, including this parable. However, Luke chapter 19 verse 11 tells us the main reason why Jesus told this particular parable. It says, It was because he was near to Jerusalem, and the people were erroneously assuming that the kingdom of God would be established eminently. The people were looking for the kingdom of God to come then, in their lifetime, immediately. But Jesus knew differently. He knew Bible prophecy said that he would first be rejected by the religious leaders and that his kingdom would be postponed. So he told this parable, which I believe could also be called the parable of the kingdom's postponement. So now carefully take note about what Jesus said about Himself and the timings of His mission. It starts with verse 12 of Luke 19, and Jesus refers to His first coming by saying, There was a man of noble birth who went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. But before he left, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten coins to conduct business until he returned. Each servant was given a small sum, only a pound, or in Greek, a mina. The commentaries say all that was expected from them was fidelity to a small trust, a conscientious use of a little sum committed for keeping. The emphasis was upon service rather than self-seeking or get-rich schemes, which sadly we hear so much about in today's sermons. But Jesus continued... The king's subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. And tragically, that's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day concluded. They rejected him as Messiah. Then in verse 15, Jesus referred to his second coming, saying, and it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded the servants to give an account of the money he had entrusted to them. The first servant came and said, Lord, I invested your coin, and look, it's made ten more coins. The king replied, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you shall have authority over ten cities. From this we learn the secret of all increase is faithfulness, and especially being faithful in the little things. Now, a second servant came and said, Lord, your coin has made five coins. And the king rewarded him with authority over five cities. But then another servant came and said, Lord, here's your coin back. I kept it in a cloth because I was afraid of you. I knew you were harsh and so on and so forth. But the king asked, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank so that I could have collected it with interest upon my return? So then the king said, Take the coin from him and give it to the one who has ten. They objected, Lord, he's already got ten coins. But the king replied, I tell you that everyone who has will be given more. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This teaches us that in the Lord's kingdom, failure to serve results in loss. The heart that refuses to love and serve the Lord loses by degrees the capacity for love and service. In fact, in one of the commentaries on this parable, I read that the agnostic Charles Darwin testified of himself towards the end of his life that his brain had become atrophied. But the parable doesn't end with a do-nothing sermon. In the parable's final verse, Luke 19:27 it ends with Jesus giving a picture of history to come. The king said, And bring those enemies of mine who refuse my rule over them and slay them before me in my presence. Wow, this is a side of Jesus that preachers today refuse to preach about. He was willing to be the meek, sacrificial lamb of God, but he's also the conquering lion of Judah. Now, this may have sounded shocking to some of his disciples standing by because they were eminently anticipating the glorious kingdom. But this parable speaks of the ultimate victory of Messiah over rebels and unbelievers. The parable was predictive of exactly the way history has gone. As 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we're not seeing a picture here of Jesus meek and mild. Here in red letters, Jesus predicts that those who refuse to have him rule over them will learn that he does rule and reign, and because they refuse his love, they will themselves be excluded from his love eternally. Now, according to the commentaries, verse 27 of this parable is an obvious reference to the terrible disaster which befell the temple in Jerusalem as well as the eternal doom reserved for the Redeemer's enemies. You see, also in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, that not one stone would be left on top of the other. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D. Today, the stones still lie in rubble, and they cry out and testify of Jesus himself. But how shocking to the Lord's disciples who believe that They were about to witness the establishment of God's glorious kingdom on earth. They knew the passage in Isaiah chapter 9, predicting the government shall be on his shoulders. And so they believed Jesus would literally take over Israel and the world in their generation. But Jesus had constantly tried to explain to them about his death. He told them, the chief priest and the leaders of Israel will arrest me and crucify me, but I will rise again. Even after his resurrection, in Acts 1-6, the disciples were still asking, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? But gradually the disciples began to understand what Jesus had been trying to teach them all along, that his coming is in two stages, his first and second comings, with the church age sandwiched in between. When Messiah comes again, as he has promised, He will finally establish the kingdom. He will destroy all God's enemies and he will sit upon David's throne, restoring Jerusalem's glory and ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Regathered and repentant Israel will become the most favored nation, along with repentant and restored Egypt and Assyria, according to Isaiah chapter 19. Assyria has yet to find its place back on the map. But Assyria will arise again. In that day, righteousness, shalom, and truth will fill this earth. And in the meantime, I can assure you, the Bible always perfectly coincides with reality. God's Word clearly teaches that the world will grow worse and worse and plunge into apostasy and darkness at the time of the Great Tribulation and the horror of Antichrist's rule. The world has always been a dangerous place. And this is no surprise to anybody who understands Bible prophecy. But in the midst of all the end-time pressure, Israel will become a nation of light-bearers that God had always intended for Israel to be. And through the nation of Israel, gospel truth will reach the furthest corners of the world. While the 1,000-year millennial rule has been on pause and countless souls have been saved from the nations... Believers have also been subjected to persecution and martyrdom. False prophets, just as Jesus predicted, have filled up history with their deceptions. So in the meantime, let's be aware that we're living in the time when the sealed words of the prophet Daniel are being fulfilled and unsealed. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, we can also rejoice that more souls will be saved in His promised thousand-year reign on earth than in all of history combined. Well, there's much more to share with you at our website, exploits.tv, where you can watch our free video library and read news on current and end-time events. Our ministry is called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, declaring that the people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. And the greatest exploit you can ever do is to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. while there's yet time. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you on social media. And don't forget, you can download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app to watch our videos on your phones or tablets. The grace of the Lord be with you. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm Christine Dark, Shalom.